It's been a big week in the US, obviously, with the new president, uh, Joe Biden, inaugurated as the president. Uh, I believe that we're going to have the honor of hosting uh, President Biden in the UK when he attends the G7 meeting in Cornwall that's coming up in June. And it's quite a thing when the US president travels. Uh, he will fly in on Air Force One, a Boeing 747 that has a lot of special features to protect the plane, enable communications under extreme uh, situations. And then, of course, there's Marine One, the helicopter that is capable of um, firing flares to divert heat-seeking missiles. It always flies in a convoy of two other aircraft, so three together, and the presidential helicopter peels off just at the last minute, so they're not quite sure which one to shoot at. On the ground, the president uh, rides around in a car which is called The Beast. Think of that in the light of our Revelation series. And this car comes with tear gas, night vision cameras, oxygen tanks, reinforced steel plating to protect against bullets, chemical attacks, and even missile strikes. It is always accompanied by a motorcade of at least a dozen support cars, police cars, emergency vehicles, the president's own uh, medical unit, nurses, surgeons, and other medical professionals are permanently on call when the, uh, in case the president is taken ill. There's a supply of blood type on hand in the car for emergency transfusions. And when, the, when he travels abroad, the president's entourage can consist of 200 security officials, political aides, and a team of personal chefs. Now, traveling like that makes a statement, doesn't it? It's a statement about the power and the significance of America. So notice with me how Jesus travels here as he enters into the capital city of Jerusalem. For Jesus was also making a significant statement as he chose to ride in on a donkey. It was clearly a deliberate statement. There's a lot of detail that Mark gives us about the preparations of how to take hold of the donkey in verses 1 to 6. Jesus tells them where to find it, uh, what to do if someone asks them what they're doing uh, in order to bring it to Jesus. And then we record that things transpired exactly as Jesus had said it would. It is all very uh, deliberate. Jesus chose this method of entry into Jerusalem, but why? I mean, that's the statement, that's the the question is, what is the statement that Jesus is making? Well, here it is. Jesus is going public that he is the Messiah. He is the king who has come to save. Now, that perhaps isn't so obvious for us today, but to the Jewish people who knew their scriptures, this was a very clear statement. Right the way back in the first book of Genesis, chapter 49, uh, we read of how when Jacob bl uh, blesses his sons, he declares this over Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. Judah, who will rule, will be shown by the way he'll tether his donkey. Zechariah chapter 9, written around um, 400 years before this event, declares, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so when Jesus is riding on this young donkey, it is the equivalent 
of arriving in the presidential car. Uh, it is the arrival of, of Air Force One on your tarmac. Jesus was going public about his identity. An unmistakable claim to be the Messiah King prophesied uh, in Genesis and Zechariah. So all the talk of urging silence, you see, it's over now. Uh, he's going public. And what has this king come to do? Well, according to Zechariah, he would come to bring victory. Uh, this is a king who had come to bring his people salvation. And the pilgrims give Jesus kind of the red carpet treatment suitable for a king, throwing their cloaks and leafy branches on the ground. And they cry out for salvation as they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means save us. They were under the rule of Rome. And here was the famous Jesus announcing himself to be their king. Now, while this king had come to save, the other role of ancient kings was to judge. And that is the focus of the next section in verses um, 11 to 21. The king has come to save. The king comes to judge. I mean, can you picture this significant moment? God's long-promised king had now arrived in Jerusalem, the fulfillment of so many ancient prophecies. So surely something dramatic would now take place. The leaders of Israel, uh, the Pharisees, the priests, the scribes would rejoice and, and welcome their king. A coronation uh, that would usher in the kingdom of God, right? Well, there's a large enthusiastic crowd. They're, they're shouting praise and supplication to God as Jesus rides into Jerusalem and then Jesus makes his way to the heart of the city into the the temple of Jerusalem what would happen now look at verse 11 Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts he looked around at everything but since it was already late he went out to Bethany with the twelve what an anticlimax! Uh, no welcome delegation even when Bartimaeus was blind uh, he called out Jesus son of David have mercy on me blind Bartimaeus could see the true identity of Jesus but none of the leaders who had working eyes had grasped it uh, the truth was that everyone was just too busy getting on with religious business at the temple to recognize that their Messiah had come. The, the crowd that got so excited seeing that not a lot was happening, well, they picked up their dusty coats and they, they disappeared. The joy and enthusiasm just seems to ebb away as Jesus merely looks around, decides it's late. And heads back to Bethany. What is going on here? I think the answer is this. The king is looking for fruit. One of the strange things about this section is all this business about the fig tree. Uh, the day after the big entry, Jesus returns to Jerusalem. But we see him en route to Jerusalem examining a leafy fig tree to look for fruit because he was hungry. But finding nothing, 
he curses the fig tree in the hearing of his disciples. Now, critics of Christianity, uh, like uh, Bertrand Russell, long dead now, uh, seized on this in an attempt to show Jesus in a bad light. That poor innocent fig tree getting cursed for not having fruit when it, the text clearly says uh, it was not even the season for figs. So what is going on here? Well, the first thing to, to say is that uh, although it was not the season for uh, figs, uh, ripe figs, a tree in leaf is a sign to expect an early form of fig that could be eaten. So it wasn't unreasonable for Jesus to expect there to be edible figs with a tree in leaf. But the main thing to notice here is, is how Jesus is using the cursing of the fig tree as symbolic teaching. All the way through Mark, we've seen this, haven't we? The way that he loves to sandwich things together and, and, and teach you important things about what he places side by side. And so here is significant teaching. The fig tree is, is mentioned twice in verses 12 to 14 and then in verses 20 to 21. And sandwiched in between the fig tree is all the activities of what Jesus did in the temple that day as he condemned the activities of the temple. See, the cursing of the fig tree is not a temper tantrum. It's not an irrational fit of anger. But Jesus is teaching the disciples through an enacted parable. The first day of going into the temple in verses 1 to 11 was Jesus looking closely, examining the temple to look for fruit. And all that busy religious activity in the temple, it looked very promising, a, a bit like a fig tree full of leaves from a distance. Josephus uh, wrote about the Passover of AD 66 when the temple was finally completed. Guess how many lambs were sacrificed and burnt? I mean, if I said 600, that would sound a, a lot, wouldn't you think? And if I said 6,000, that would be a huge amount of lambs. Well, the actual figure is 255,600 lambs were sacrificed on that one day alone. Here was a busy temple, lots of religious activity, apparently lots of worshipping and honouring of God, so much foliage. But when the king comes and looks up close, he can find no fruit at all. People were not living in the conscious expectation of the coming king in fulfillment of God's promises. And that is a powerful warning to us today. I mean, churches in normal times, in pre-COVID times, can look fantastic, can't they? Lots of people, lots of religious activity, large buildings, lots of tradition, that, that, that can look outwardly impressive and yet from God's perspective it's possible that for all that show there actually might be no fruit at all. No one living in the light of the returning king. All just outward show and leaves. And I think verse 13 is, is a sobering picture of Jesus drawing near and having a close look. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves. 
John has similar imagery in, in Revelation as he portrays Jesus standing as the glorious Son of Man, standing amongst the lampstands, the, the lampstands being uh, pictures of congregations in which Jesus uh, addresses in the coming uh, chapters. And so Jesus is walking around, getting up close to churches, looking about what is happening. What does the Lord of his church see in us as a congregation? Are we a people living in the light of his kingdom? Are we a people who are praying and living to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? What is his judgment, his assessment of us? When Jesus examined the temple, all he could see was fruitless, self-serving religion that deserved condemnation. And so in verse 15, we see Jesus' his response. It's a very clear statement, isn't it? Tables of money being thrown over, seats of salesmen being kicked out from under them, driving animal sellers and their flocks out of the temple. Would you say that Jesus was angry? How would you describe this event? Well, verse 17 says he was teaching them. What was he so angry about? Well, there are a couple of clues there in in verse 17, where Jesus quotes two different Old Testament texts. He quotes from Isaiah 56, verse 7. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? I mean, God's intention was that the temple would be open to people from all over the world. There was the court of the Gentiles that, so that people could have access to come in near to God and to pray to him. But the temple in Jesus' day had a, a number of these different spaces. That, as I say, the outer courts was the court of the Gentiles. But instead of it being a place of prayer, the Jewish leaders, Jewish leaders had allowed it to become kind of a marketplace for animals and financial trading. The temple had become a lucrative money machine for the chief priests and the Jewish leadership. And so instead of it being a place of worship and prayer, it had become a place of commerce and financial misappropriation. The second quote is from Jeremiah chapter 7. Uh, Jeremiah was told to stand in the temple and tell the people that they were heading for great judgment. It says this in verse 9 of chapter 7. Will you steal? and murder, and commit adultery, and perjury, burn incest to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name, and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Remember Jesus looking for fruit in the temple. I have been watching, declares the Lord. In Jeremiah's time, they thought that they could do whatever they wanted in their everyday lives, even the things that they knew that God had commanded them not to do, but they would be safe as long as they kept coming along to the temple every now and again. Sin all you want midweek and then turn up on the weekend to make confession and make sacrifices 
and then go back to do exactly the same things next week and all will be well. Everything will be okay as long as we keep this uh, religious uh, thing going once a week. But earlier in the chapter, in Jeremiah chapter 7, uh, it says this, this is the warning. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Now Jesus quotes this very chapter of Jeremiah as he's casting the people out of the temple. Jesus is seeing the same hypocrisy that Jeremiah saw in his day. The same misplaced confidence in, in outward religion, in religious buildings that would keep you safe if you kept religion going, keep you safe before God regardless of how you were living your life. And the tragedy that the people of God in his day were just the same as that and not reflecting the character of, of God to the onlooking world. This grieves Jesus and he casts them out. And so what a tragedy then if the Christian church looks just as corrupt and messed up as the rest of the world where we fail to reveal the character of God to the world. How tragic if there's lots of foliage but no God-pleasing fruit. And God's king had come uh, to condemn empty, fruitless religion that was ripping people off, oppressing the poor and the widow, committing acts of injustice. Look at the shock of Peter the next day when he comes back to the fig tree that Jesus had cursed. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. You see, Jesus hadn't just merely come to cleanse the temple. He'd come to pronounce that it would be totally destroyed. The fig tree was shriveled up from the roots. It would never bear fruit again. Uh, the cursed fig tree was a picture of what would take place in AD 70 uh, when the temple that Herod the Great built finished in AD 66. It was destroyed completely in AD 70. God's king had come to judge man-centered religion. It was all useless. It was all under God's condemnation. Tim Keller uh, the pastor from New York uh, often points out that there are two ways to reject God. One is by being irreligious. The other is by being very religious. You know, we can engage in lots of religious activity or, or different forms of spirituality in order to earn a way of justifying ourselves before God, while at the same time rejecting the provision that God has made in Jesus Christ. But any uh, sort of man-centered religion, any merit-attaining religion is just as much under God's condemnation as being irreligious. And both these positions place us under God's condemnation. The only way to be right with God, the only way to have a relationship with God is through the saving sacrifice of his own son, Jesus Christ, the King who came to save. So how should we 
respond to God in the light of the coming of Jesus, the Messiah King. What, in essence, was the fruit that Jesus was looking for? The answer is in verses 22 to 25. Look at verse 22. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. The response that we need to have before God is faith in him. Now, this might seem a bit off subject, but of course it's not. As the Jewish temple is being condemned, Jesus had actually come to build a new spiritual temple made up of people who put their faith and trust in him. Remember the, uh, the opening message from Jesus as he started his public ministry. In chapter 1, verse 15, the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The only response for Peter and for us is to have faith in God's word, to have faith in the Messiah and his promise to bring in the kingdom of God through his suffering and death and resurrection. And to be a people who live in conscious expectation of the fullness of his coming kingdom. Religion and spirituality that's not living in the light of the return of Jesus as king, saviour and judge is all fruitless and under condemnation. Jesus is calling us to live in the light of his coming kingdom. To have faith in God. And just as people came to the Old Testament temple uh, for two main reasons, to approach God in prayer and to receive forgiveness, then these are the two teaching points of Jesus in verses 22 to 25. This faith in God is evidenced by prayer, believing, expectant, seeking first God's kingdom, prayer. Look at verse 23. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to you, uh, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their hearts, but believe that, that what they will say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. The first evidence of a living faith is a prayer life that's focused on the kingdom of God. I mean, what does Jesus mean by calling us to become mountain movers through prayer? Well, I think it speaks back to the end of Zechariah chapter 14, where on the decisive day of the Lord, when the Lord comes in judgment to bring victory to his people, it says this, uh, on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives was split into two from east to west, forming a great valley. Then half of the mountain moving north and half the mountain moving south. I think this is what it means by the mountain moving. And so verse 24 really is, I shall be praying with faith, patiently waiting for this coming kingdom. Uh, Jesus taught us to pray, didn't he? Your kingdom come, your will be done. That should be the forefront of our prayer life. 
Verse 24 is such a bold encouragement to believing prayer, isn't it? As we seek God's kingdom in our prayer in our lives, then we will see mountains move. I don't think this is a kind of genie in the lamp type promise that I can ask uh, anything I want and I'm going to get it. We only have to think back to uh, the verses earlier where uh, James and John had come to Jesus with their request. We want you to do for us whatever we want. And remember what Jesus' response was. Uh, they did not know what they were asking for and Jesus refuses to give them a blank check. So I don't think prayer is this kind of blank check, rub the lamp genie that we can get everything we want. But we do have a heavenly father who knows how to give good gifts. He knows that we need daily bread and shelter. So pray on in faith. Pray for his kingdom to come. The second fruit of faith is there in verses, uh, verse 24. And it is for forgiveness. Verse 25. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Those who have faith in God are marked not just by seeking first his kingdom, but also his righteousness. We are to be people marked by forgiveness. And as we pray, asking God to forgive our many sins of speech, thought and deeds, then Jesus points out it would be incompatible for us to be asking God for forgiveness for ourselves while at the same time we are nursing grudges or bitterness towards others. Why should we expect God to forgive our many sins when we're unwilling to forgive others the sins that they've committed against us? If we're followers of Christ, of this Messiah, and yet nursing bitterness and anger towards others, then it's a serious obstacle in our relationship with God let alone the other people. And one of the great signs of living faith is our ability to be able to forgive others. It really is supernatural evidence of God's grace in our lives. It's a glorious fruit because we don't find forgiveness very easy. One thing as we close I want us to notice here is this expectation of Jesus that we will need to pray with forgiveness for forgiveness. The Christian is not someone who lives this perfect life, who never slips up. The truth is that for most of us, we are better at showing lots of leaves and looking good on the outside than bearing the fruit of faith. And Jesus recognizes this. He knows that faith-filled Christians who pray will be those who confess their trespasses daily to God. God hates religious fakes. The worst kind are those who are filled with a sort of a smug self-righteousness that look down on everyone else. And the truth is that we know as Christians, we need forgiveness. We need a great King and Saviour in Jesus who died in our place. All our hopes are depending on our personal efforts, on our worldly religious observance are totally worthless. So have faith in God through Jesus Christ alone. Through believing prayer, you can receive God's forgiveness today. You can be right with him. You can live a life of bearing the fruit of faith. So be encouraged, my Christian friends, if you're uh, finding that you have to return to him for forgiveness. He expects it. He's made full provision for it. And my friends, if you've never come to God for forgiveness, why not do so today? This King Jesus will return to judge. 
Are you ready? Are you forgiven? Turn to him today.